Word association is a tool used by communicators and advertisers to help further their point without the need of lengthy visual displays. When you hear the word athlete, certain images begin to conjure in your mind. Perhaps you picture someone who is athletically fit, muscular, perhaps one dressed in a particular sports uniform, one who perhaps is tall, fast, etc. When you hear the word school teacher, certain images begin to fill your mind. Perhaps you see a lady wearing glasses, dressed nicely, but not too nice because she has to get after the children. Words create images in our mind. When you pictured the athlete, undoubtedly you pictured someone who was fit and not overweight. We don't think of someone as being seriously obese as, as a, a top-tier athlete. Or when you picture a teacher, fascinatingly, most people picture a woman rather than a man. Why? Because our mind creates pictures And over a period of time, these word associations are created. In fact, if you've ever learned another language, one of the tools that is used to teach other languages is word association. We are people who remember pictures, and those little pictures are associated with words. Now, what is my point? Well, If you think about word association, often they are misinformed and biased. We see a certain person walking down the street and we assume certain things about them. We picture, we see a word and we begin to assume what is meant by that word. We, we conjure in our mind. We use the creative ability God has given us to create a fanciful world which is not real. Why is this important to Christians? Well, if we have the wrong association of what a Christian looks like, we will begin to form biased images in our mind number of years ago, it would have been unheard of. It would have been preached against. It would have been condemned if you were found dancing or playing cards. Now, of course, there might be room for restraint on number of activities. But Christians historically, contextually, have had different pictures about what a Christian looks like, which is different than the picture that Jesus gives in his word. And this morning, as we begin this series through the Sermon on the Mount, I want to challenge you to push beyond your preconceived notions about what you think a Christian looks like. And to get a new vision from the Lord Jesus himself, from the Sermon on the Mount, what a Christian really looks like. You know, so many of us think a Christian should dress a certain way. Maybe be about certain behaviors, maybe particular activities, or have certain associations. For some Christians, they think that Christians, or for some people rather, They believe that Christians might be associated with one political party over and against another. And if you don't think that, you need to wake up and drink the coffee this morning a little bit. I'm going to press in a little bit here and I'm going to poke you a little bit. I don't care if it's Easter or whatever day it is. There is no adjective that describes a Christian. Christian is it. Ain't white Christian, black Christian, Asian Christian, Republican Christian, Democratic Christian, American Christian, Canadian Christian. It's only Christians. Jesus here qualifies characteristics of a Christian, but never modifies it 
with an S. There isn't rich Christians or poor Christians. There's only one kind. And as we dive into this, we have to understand, and you need to take this to Jesus and pray that the Spirit of God would illumine your eyes to some misconceptions about what a Christian is, about what a Christian looks like, how a Christian dresses, what entertainment a Christian uses. The Bible speaks into all these kind of areas. But we need to be careful that we're not picking up on cultural biases and applying them to what it means to be a Christian. What we want to do is come to God's word and have our minds and souls renewed to get a vivid picture of what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian. And thankfully, Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us in Matthew chapter 5. So I invite you, if you've not done already, to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin a series over the next uh, few months through what has been widely known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And we want to spend the next few months digging into this. And we studied John's gospel at a pretty quick pace. But we want to come in here and kind of slow down, you know, do a Sunday afternoon drive with this particular sermon. Slow down, roll the windows down, take the air in a bit, let the sun shine in, shine the light on our messed up little dirty cars, and, and understand that we need Jesus to clarify for us, I think, a little bit about what it means to follow him. And that's what he does in this sermon. Now, before we set into this, we understand that Matthew, one of Jesus' early disciples, is recording for us one of Jesus' most infamous sermons. All right? We're kind of jumping in here, and in just a moment, I'll set up the context in a little bit better, in a, in a little bit better way. But I want you to understand, as we come in, we're going to consider Matthew 5 through 7. And so if you like to read ahead, and let me encourage you to do that, just be reading through this sermon over and over and over again over the next few weeks. Just, just pray, God, do a work in my life through this, through your word, through this message. Well, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew records, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, as we consider these first 16 verses, John, see, or John Matthew, uh, through recording this teaching, seeks to teach us that Jesus here is describing the good life in the kingdom of God, by teaching the distinctives of discipleship and the peculiarities of following Jesus. 
Jesus outlines in these Beatitudes, what is often known as the Beatitudes, to be kingdom people who are distinct people set apart for God's work in the world. So this morning, the purpose of our time is really for us to see and understand and follow these kingdom distinctives by living lives that are different than the world. That we are to be a peculiar people, a strange people. We, we are to be otherly, different. This is what Jesus is after here in the sermon. And so the Lord outlines for us as he begins this sermon in introducing in verses 1 through 16 really is just an introduction to the sermon. He will deal with each of these individual themes one by one throughout the sermon. And so we get a little taste, a little a foretaste of what Jesus is going to get and dig into. And boy, does he love to dig at men's idols. And he does so in this sermon. And so Jesus outlines three aspects concerning the kingdom of God. First, kingdom people. We see first, who are the people he's addressing? Secondly, we see kingdom distinctives. Jesus outlines eight kingdom distinctives, eight characteristics that, that describe the kingdom activity. And finally, we see kingdom peculiarities. That is, that kingdom people live peculiar lives. They are to live strange lives. They are to be otherly, and we want to think about what that means. So first we see in verses 1 through 2 that Jesus here is teaching kingdom people. Jesus here is addressing his people. Now we're told in verse 1 that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and he began to teach. Well, did you know that Matthew concludes this sermon in a very similar way? In verse 28 of chapter 7, Matthew says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, Jesus was teaching a Jewish people that knew what Jesus was doing. Jesus was acting like someone that they knew. Jesus was going to a place like a leader that they followed would do. You see, Moses was the pinnacle teacher of the people of Israel. Even in Jesus' day, everyone, everything pointed back to Moses because Moses wrote down the law. Moses was the authoritative teacher of God's people. And Jesus here does exactly what Moses does. He goes up to a hillside, he sits down, and begins to teach as one who has authority. Jesus is declaring that he is the king who has ushered in a new era of redemptive. A clear reference is being made here, and Jesus here is speaking as one who has authority over the law, as we'll think about next week. That he is the one who came to fulfill the law. In other words, that everything that Jesus teaches in this sermon is binding on the conscience of men and women. This is not the Green Berets instructional manual. A number of years ago, a, a, a very fine teacher here in America wrote a book about how you could live a radical life. And he detailed how you should live radically for Jesus and sacrificially for Jesus. He wrote a really, it was a really good book. It's really good, good stuff. And another brother came along and he wrote a, wrote a rebuttal to that book. And he called it, he titled it Ordinary. Michael Horton, what he wrote in that book was meant to, to communicate that Man, we're not called to live radical lives. We're just called to live ordinary, Jesus-following lives. In other words, you might be surprised this morning by some of these commands. And you might think, as a Christian, I, I can never do this. Friend, you're missing the point. Jesus isn't saying you have to do this to get in. He's saying, this is what's so cool. If, when you get in, 
This is what you're going to start doing by the power of my spirit. This is the kind of people I'm making. I'm forming you. I'm molding you. I'm shaping you into a kingdom people. You see, Jesus had authority to form God's people. Jesus is the creator God, the one who speaks and creates, as we learned in John's gospel. And when Jesus speaks, things come into existence. And he spoke his people into existence by calling them to follow him. You know what came before John chapter 5? Well, John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, right there above this, this, these verses, notice what he does. There, beginning in verse 18, Jesus calls and forms a kingdom people. Jesus called Simon and Andrew, his brother, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Did you hear that? Oh, we, we use that. We put that on our bumper stickers, but we kind of miss the point. Jesus says something there, doesn't he? He uses a verb, doesn't he? He says, I will make, I will create, I will form he says, you don't get it. You, this, you don't understand. You don't get a choice in this. Follow me and I'm going to craft you and mold you and make you into a kingdom people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And so it's important to note that Jesus here, as the text says explicitly there in verse one, that he is writing, he is teaching. He sat down with his disciples. Therefore, these are not standards of entry into the kingdom of God. These kingdom distinctives that we're going to get into and dig in in just a moment. These are not the entry point. You don't do these to get the keys to enter the kingdom. Rather, these are the distinctives. You see, a culture is defined as the customs, values, and beliefs of a particular people. We live in a culture here in America that has customs, values, and beliefs. We live in subcultures. Within this greater American culture, you, you and I live in different subcultures. And here Jesus, in this passage, outlines for his disciples the culture of the kingdom of God. These are the customs, the values, and the beliefs of those who have been invited to become kingdom citizens. You must not miss this point, lest we preach a works gospel. Jesus' message is not, do these things and you can be a kingdom people. Jesus says, you are a kingdom people, act like these. If you want to be in my kingdom, this is how my kingdom people behave. This is what my kingdom people give themselves to. This is therefore not a list of legalistic demands placed upon those who are wanting to enter, but distinctives describing those who have already repented and trusted in Jesus and are subsequently following him. Brother or sister, if that describes you this morning, these are for you. These distinctives are vital for our understanding of really, I think, the whole sermon. If you, if you get a, a little off on these first exhortations, you will get the whole sermon wrong. You see, so often we are tempted. We love lists. We love to, you know, put them on the wall and tell us what we need to do. But that is not what Jesus is calling us to do here. He here is not forming some kind of works righteousness or this morning crushed under the weight of such high demands. If you don't walk away from this sermon, meaning Jesus' sermon on the mount here, in John, or Mark, Matthew chapter 1. If you don't walk away from this like really pricked and concerned, then you haven't read it. You see, Jesus isn't one to like, you know, set the bar low and then, you know, you, you made it and then kind of raise the bar. Jesus puts the bar as high as it can go. And he says this, and we'll think about this next week. He says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, ever, ever be a part of the kingdom of God. Therefore, as Christians, we must not just brush these teachings away as too hard. But in the words of John Stott, see them as one meant to develop a Christian counterculture. Nothing in this teaching is normative, but is ordinary. None, none of what Jesus is teaching is normal for this fallen world. But brothers and sisters, it is ordinary for the Christian life. 
That by the power of the Spirit, through the renewing work of the Spirit in your life, this is who God is forming us to be, kingdom people. So let's look at these eight distinctives that Jesus lists out. Eight, uh, quote-unquote, beatitudes. You'll notice, beginning in verse 3, all the way through verse 10, Jesus begins each of these by saying, Blessed are. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. And then you'll see that a phrase hangs off of it, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they shall be comforted, for they shall inherit, so on and so forth. Now, why are there eight distinctives and not nine? What about verse 11? Well, verse 11, as you'll see, and we'll get into in just a moment, really is, verses 11 through 12, is Jesus's explanation of the eighth and final beatitude. Why do we believe that there's only eight? Well, you'll notice that he begins the first beatitude with the causal phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and bookends the beatitudes there in verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, in, in, in the mind of the, of the listener, these were taught as a way that they would be memorable. They would have remembered them. He began a number of them with the same letter in order for the ear to remember that. A mnemonic device was used. And and so there are eight distinctives, beginning with blessed is or blessed are the poor in spirit and ending with blessed are those who are persecuted. Well, before we get into these distinctives, we need to get our terms right. And what is it that Jesus is after? What does it mean, blessed? Now, some translations have translated this happy. And rightly so. They they seek to get a little bit away from that theologically loaded word, blessed. You see, that word that Jesus uses there isn't that Old Testament word that means blessed. This is a different Greek word. Matthew records a very different Greek word here in order to communicate not this sort of divine favor from God. And that's why modern translators have sought in the English language to use a word like happy. That is, there's this happiness, but then the word happy can seem kind of trivial and joyful and it doesn't seem to fit, right? Happy are those who mourn. It doesn't communicate very clearly in the English language. And so many scholars and and many of those who have done uh, studies in this particular word have captured this idea and painted the picture best with the phrase, the good life. In other words, the good life, the right life, the, the, the kingdom life. The good life is, is described as those who are poor in spirit. You, you see, that's counter what the culture might say. In other words, Jesus here is setting up a description of people who are distinct and different than any culture, whether it be American, British, wherever you are. It's distinct. And so he's describing here the good life. And what it means to be kingdom people. And he begins by saying, verse 3, that kingdom people recognize their spiritual poverty. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus means here, not those who are poor in the eyes of the world, but those who are poor spiritually. They are spiritually bankrupt. They are spiritually empty. They are spiritual beggars. You see, kingdom people are people who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt. They have a poverty in their spirituality and they need God to help. Jesus says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Not only that, he says in verse 4 that kingdom people are those who receive comfort when they mourn their sin. You know, so often we've interpreted this passage as mourn, meaning mourn the loss of a loved one. The verbal idea that, that Jesus uses here that Matthew records is not one of mourning the loss of someone, but rather the mourning over one's current state. 
Similar to what Jesus did when he wept outside of Lazarus' tomb. When when John says that Jesus wept, it wasn't because he was weeping, mourning that John was dead. He knew that he was about to raise John from the dead. Rather, he was weeping and mourning over what had happened to his creation. That sin had brought death into the world. And, And here, you and I need to understand that we will receive comfort when we mourn our sin. Not comfort in that it's all going to be okay, your sin doesn't matter. But rather comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ because he deals with our sin through the death of Christ. Thirdly, we see that kingdom people inherit a renewed earth. That the kingdom is for those who humbly submit to God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, a word that describes humility, counter pride. Kingdom people are humble people. They're people who are humbly submitted to the will of God in their lives. And notice what he says, for they shall inherit the earth. Brothers and sisters, he loaded that up with some deep theology. See, the people of Israel was to inherit the earth. And Jesus explicitly applies it to the church, to the people of God, that they have been grafted in. And that those who are in the kingdom of God, it's not two kingdoms, Israel and and the church, but one kingdom unified under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he says that those who humbly submit to the will of God enter a renewed kingdom. Fourthly, we see here in verse 6 that kingdom people are righteous people. But look at verse 6 here. Blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, kingdom people are people who long to be holy. Friend, do you long to be holy? Is it your daily prayer that you would be more and more holy? More and more righteous? Look at the verbs that he uses. Hunger and thirst. Thirst. An insatiable desire that cannot be quenched by anything in this world save for righteous living. J.C. Ryle says it this way, that kingdom people long not so much to be rich or wealthy or learned, learned, I guess, as to be holy. See, kingdom people's desires to be holy. Does that, friend, describe you? Do you think of yourself as a, as a Christian yet not long to be holy as Jesus is holy? The fifth distinctive here comes in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Kingdom people receive mercy because they've shown mercy. Jesus is going to deal with this. He's going to knock us silly with this. He's going to straighten us up with this. Are you merciful? Are you forgiving? Jesus doesn't have a category for a Christian who's not merciful. He says that if you're not willing to be merciful, then it must mean that you are not a recipient of my mercy. Because if you were a recipient of my mercy, you would be the most merciful person in all the world. He told an illustration, didn't he? A parable about a man who owed a big debt. And about how he was unwilling to forgive a debt, even though he himself had been forgiven a greater debt. Brothers and sisters, you've been forgiven the greatest debt of all. Yet you hold on to some of the silliest things, some of the most petty things, and I do it too. Kingdom people are to be merciful people. We want to strive to be merciful. Not just merciful to people who are like us. But do you break when you see injustice in this world? When you see injustice, do you want to show them mercy? Do you, do you want to show them relief? That's who kingdom people are. 
Sixthly, we see in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, kingdom people have a relationship with God as those who are morally pure. Moral purity. Let me say this negatively to you this morning. Do you want to see God? Do you want to see God? Then you must have a pure heart. For only pure hearts enter the kingdom of eternal glory. God is about making pure people. We need to strive for moral purity. This is why we as a congregation want to stand up to sin. And not just sort of redefine what sin is, but, but speak clearly where the Bible speaks clearly about what sin is. Because we want to be a people who see God. Seventhly, kingdom people are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. The idea of being a peacemaker is one who works to reconcile others. It doesn't mean that he or she is needing to be reconciled, but they work to see where there is division. They seek to be a unifying spirit in the midst of that. Are you a un- un- uniter or divider? I find a lot of times in local churches, there's a high population of dividers rather than uniters. But as kingdom people, we are to be people who are peacemakers. Are you, are, do you find joy in throwing bombs at others? Whether it be verbal bombs, whether it be ideas that are contrary to the, whether it be your personal preferences or, or, or you about the unity of do you strive for the unity of the body, the bond of peace? Is that, is that what you're after? Is, is peace or division? Brothers and sisters, notice this. For they shall be called, because they shall be called sons of God. God is a peacemaking God. God is a reconciling God. That is what we are. As the, as the Apostle Paul teaches the church in Corinth, who is the, about the least unifying church in all the world, that they were to be ministers of reconciliation. You see, that's what the gospel does. It takes people who are divisive and dividing and he transforms them into peacemakers and reconcilers. Are you a reconciler? Finally, here we see that, that we must realize that kingdom people suffer persecution. And it's normal. Blessed are those who are persecuted For righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes clear that kingdom people will suffer for the kingdom. Now, lest we get confused about what persecution is, Jesus helpfully defines. First, he says it's for righteousness sake. Friend, let me say this to you another way. It's not because you're a jerk. Because I, I, I find a lot of Christians who whine that they're suffering and being persecuted. And the real reason is, it's because you're a jerk. Jesus says it's because of righteousness. Because you're living a righteous life. Because of your holiness. Because of your Christ-likeness. Not because you are right. You see, a lot of times Christians get in fights with others because all they want to do is be Right. That's not what Jesus says. Righteous. Holy. Not because you're taking some sort of moral high ground and throwing bombs at others below you. It's because you are seeking to uphold the truth of God's word in a world that is wildly changing. And the point we want to understand is that it is normal for Christians to purchase or to be persecuted. I'll be honest with you. It really hasn't been in really the last couple of years that we've really been persecuted as Christians. I mean, when you compare our 
so-called sufferings to brothers and sisters in Asia and African countries. Where, where people are afraid to go down the road lest they be kidnapped and killed because they're Christians. Friend, you know, we need to kind of put our persecution a bit of perspective. And that's not to minimize personal persecution that you face. I don't mean in any means to minimize perhaps the sufferings that you've faced because in your family being a Christian is unacceptable. Or in your workplace, you're being forced uh, to affirm certain mor moral principles that you find immoral. So don't get me wrong. There are ways that as Christians, we will be persecuted in this life. And right now here in America, there are many ways in which we will be persecuted and are being persecuted. And friends, that persecution is only going to get hotter and hotter. And what you need to hear this morning is that you're no more like Jesus than when you suffer for him. When you're suffering for Jesus, oh, these sweet saints of old who suffered for Jesus, man, they seem to be so close to heaven. Because there's something that suffering does when, when you're being refined by the fire that draws you close to your Savior and I think is clarifying and realizes that you're not of this world. Jesus goes on to further describe the kind of suffering He has in mind. He says, blessed are you in verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He describes here the kind of persecution he has in mind. Revile, verbally assault you, physically harm you, lie about you. And just pick up the latest newspaper and some of these court cases centered around homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And you will see so many lies being told about what Christians believe about these particular sins. They're, they're bigotry. They're evil. They're, they're hateful Christians. Furthest thing from the truth. Now, are there bigots out there? Yes. Are there hateful people out there? Yes, but they're not Christians. They might claim the name of Jesus, but that doesn't mean they're Christians. Just because we stand on the truth of God's word doesn't mean we hate you. Just because we stand and say that adultery is sin doesn't mean we hate you. Just because we say that stealing is sin doesn't mean we hate you. Just because we say these things is sin does not mean we hate you. In fact, it means the contrary. It means we love you. And we don't want to see you burn eternally in hell. We love you. We want you to have the good life. Because you've been deceived. Jesus exhorts us in verse 12 to rejoice and be glad. Why? Two reasons. First, your reward is great in heaven. I love Jesus. And I love his ambiguity about rewards in heaven. He knows us so well. All we like to do is, oh man, what are them rewards going to be? Am I going to get like some cash? Like a little piece of gold or something like that? What, what's going on? That is not the point, friend. I think the, the reward is that you're in heaven, okay? <laughs> I think that's the reward. Like, what else is there? I mean, Jesus makes it kind of clear. Like, if he's going to make the street out of gold, like, what else is he going to give you that's going to be of any monetary value? Um, no, friend. It, you see, it's a perspective. That's what he means here. He, he's giving you a perspective. He's saying, like, you're going to heaven. Whatever you face here on earth is temporal. It's, it's only for a moment. It's, it's, as the Apostle Paul says, light and momentary. This life is so fast. That's why I love having a congregation of young and old. Because the old people can give such a good perspective that life is so fast. And young people, they think that life will last forever. And it won't. And it's only when you draw closer and closer to the reality that, hey, statistically speaking, people of my age die off pretty quickly. 
that the reality begins to set in that I need to be right before God because I'm going to meet him sooner than later. And us young folks need to learn a little bit of dose of reality and a bit of perspective when it comes to suffering in a fallen world that it is temporary, that we are to endure for the sake of the glory of God. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus, you must be crazy. Why would one rejoice? Why would one be happy? It is because heaven is in sight. And secondly, because for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What a group to be labeled among. What, what a line. You, you know, if you read church history, the, the brothers and sisters who were who being burned alive for translating the Bible into English, when they were doing that, and they were being murdered because they put the Bible in the English language, they would say, we stand on the shoulders of giants who came before us. You know what that means? It means, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, they found themselves in a line of succession of faithful followers of Jesus. And I wonder, are you in that line this morning? Or are you trying to step out of line? I don't want no part of that. No, I'll just change my moral views so nobody gets mad at me at work. No, I won't speak the truth in love. I'll just let that, that immorality continue around me. It's better to be at peace with others than to be at war. See, God's called his people to be a distinct people. To be set apart with these particular aspects, distinctions, to live a life that is separate from those around them. And that is why he illustrates it with these two pictures. First, of being salt of the earth, and second, being the light of the world. See, what Jesus is doing here in this illustration of salt and light is describing, illustrating for the eye what he means by the Beatitudes. You see, if we are kingdom people, if we live out and we hold up these distinctives, then we will be countercultural in this world. We will be otherly in this world. We will be salt and light. Jesus says there in verse 13 that you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Salt had two functions in this time period. One, to give flavor to food. And secondly, to preserve food. I mean, nobody likes bland food, right? We want salty food. But salt also not only gives flavor, it also preserves and Jesus says that, that, that his people are to be preserving and purifying agents in a fallen world. We are to be people who are purifying agents. We're not to look like the world, but different than the world. We're to, to live out these, these distinctives in our lives. And by following them, we will be different. This is how we purify. We purify by living out kingdom distinctives. We don't purify by running around and screaming our heads off that the sky is falling, but by living faithful, ordinary Christian lives. Sister, by you faithfully caring for your children, by faithfully loving your wife or your husband, husbands, faithfully loving your, your wife, Working diligently at work and faithfully at work. By being a reconciler among brothers and sisters in the church. By, by suffering persecution. All a host of these things. By, by pursuing a moral pure heart. By fighting sin. And killing lust in your heart and, and, and desires. These are the means that God uses to purify a fallen world. And Jesus here warns his disciples, doesn't he? But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? <laughs> it can't. Once salt stops being salt, it's not salt anymore. That's why Jesus says it's no good for anything. Just to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's, it's no good. And brothers and sisters, here's the truth that we need to take home. 
is that you and I lose our ability to be purifying agents when we do not live holy lives. When we cease to be kingdom people, then we cease to be and have the ability to be purifying agents. Oh, we've heard it a million times. Christians are hypocrites. Yeah, we got that. But here's how we fight against that, that idea is by living holy lives. We are to be a preserving agent, but secondly, we see that we are to be an illuminating agent. He says that we are to be the light of the world. He describes the light he has in mind in a number of illustrations. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. All right, there's, there's not like some big cloth they could do to hide themselves. They're up on a hill. They're visible to all. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. See, your life should draw others to God, not repel them. That's what a light does, isn't it? It gives illumination. People are drawn to light. Um, great illustration of that. Those little bugs in the summertime, right? Zapped up by the light. That's what we're to be. We're to be light, drawing people to God, not repelling them by our sour taste. I was going to say, we're, Jesus doesn't say in this passage that you're to be lemons, right? Because that's what we often are, just a bunch of sour lemons. We're to be light. Your life should be on mission for the gospel to the ends of the earth. One of the tragedies, I think, of modern evangelicalism is this idea that Christians are to be separate, period. See, Jesus didn't say to be separate. He said to be in the world and be separate. You see the distinction? You see, I, I grew up in, in, in a Southern Baptist church my whole life. And you know what we were taught all the time? You can't be hanging around them bad people. You got to get in the church and the, well, the problem with that philosophy is exactly why we struggle in evangelism today, because we don't know any non-Christians. Who are you evangelizing if everybody around you is a Christian? You see, we're to be the light of the world. We can't be a light if we're just in here shining flashlights at each other. We're all a bunch of lights. The lights need to get out in the dark. I don't mean participate with the dark, but be with the dark. Be around the dark. Talk to the dark. Get to know and understand why they think the way they think and do the things they do. Don't just assume because you read, you know, Fox News and you understand the, what the world thinks now. No, no. Get in the world. Get to know people. Join associations. Do things. Venture out. I don't care what age you are. I mean, I love hearing our sisters uh, down at, uh, at the assisted living just talking about how they're always out there sharing the gospel with folks. I love that. It's so cool. Right? Because they're like, hey, we're like locked in this building. They can't get out. They're locked in here too. So we're going to go at them. Take Jesus to them. Love it. It's great. We need to do that too. We all need to be doing that. We need to live lives on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, righteousness and evangelism are characteristics of true disciples. Show me a disciple that does not share the gospel, and I will say that's not a disciple. Jesus says it this way. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. That is what I've just been talking about, your kingdom distinctives. See them and give glory to your Father in heaven. Je Jesus doesn't have in mind here a showboating about how awesome we are, but rather living holy lives before others. Surround your people, surround your life with messed up people that need Jesus. Surround yourself, develop relationships with people who need Jesus because, as Jesus says here in verse 16, because you are in relationship with the eternal God. You see, as we live, notice what he says, as we live evangelistic lives, as we live lives of the glory of Christ before others, we then give glory to God, your father who is in heaven. Living distinct lives before others, otherly lives, 
is what we're to do. One scholar says it this way, that this is not a job description of a disciple. It is not the job description of the disciple to fulfill by private personal holiness, but also includes the witness of public exposure. It's not to live a private, closed-off life where we all just kind of hunker in here on Sunday and point fingers at the world, but get in the world and let your light shine before men. Jesus illustrates for us these two kingdom uh, distinctives and how we're to be salt and light. Different, but not separated. Distinct, but not disassociated. We are to be people who live in the world, but are not of the world. We are to be preserving salt of the world and an illuminating light that leads others to Christ. I want to conclude with this quote by J.C. Ryle. He writes this, Have we any saving religion? Then there must be a difference of habits, taste, and a turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. It is perfectly clear, he says, that true Christianity is something more than being baptized and going to church. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity both of earth and how we live. Of faith and practice. We must dare to be singularly and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. Well, brothers and sisters, let us then this week Live out these kingdom distinctives, being salt and light in a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, we pray this this morning that your will be done in our lives. Form us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Make us into fishers of men. Make us into kingdom people. Form your people right now, I pray, by the power of your spirit. Work in our souls that we might be salt and light for your glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.